Uh, I know a Christian man, I used to work with him. Uh, He's mature and intelligent and he should know better. But he once told me he used to go and watch, among other things, R-rated movies by himself for educational purposes only. He was a school teacher with an academic background and a registered psychologist and he said it helped him to see the traps that young people could fall into so he could communicate better with them and help them steer clear of these sorts of problems. But that's just dangerous and silly. Uh, I don't need to play with electricity uh, to, get, uh, to know that it's dangerous, uh, to be able to warn people that it's dangerous and that they need to stay away from it. He thought that as a Christian he was free to do what he liked. He presumed that his self-control was enough to keep him out of trouble. He presumed that God's grace was big enough to cover any sort of sin or misdemeanour. It's a little bit like the problem Paul's facing with the Corinthians. There's a group in the church who thought they were so mature they could join in the feasts at pagan temples. Uh, They presumed that because they also ate the Lord's Supper, the table of Christian fellowship, they thought that made them safe. But that's foolish and God won't overlook it. He'll punish that behaviour because it's, it's idolatry. It's not freedom of conscience, it's, it's idolatry. It's not enlightenment, it's idolatry. Nothing more, nothing less. And Paul points out the peril of their way of thinking. At the risk of sounding like Dr Seuss, he points out the peril of presuming that privilege precludes punishment. And he does it by giving us a history lesson about Israel, about how the Jews had so many privileges and yet in the end most of them missed out. And he wants the Corinthians and he wants us to learn their lesson from history. So let's have a look at how the chapter begins. God had given Israel all sorts of great things and he focuses on the Exodus. But notice the interesting way he describes how God rescued his people from Israel, uh, from Egypt. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It's funny language, isn't it? Baptised into Moses eating and drinking spiritual food and drink. And what is it with that bit about the rock who was Christ being somewhere out in the desert? What's going on? I think the key to understanding it is to remember that Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians a lesson from history and to do that he needs to place them into history or he needs to show them how they're the same as the people from history. And so Paul's point is Israel had all sorts of privileges Uh, They received a sort of baptism, just like you and I were baptised. But rather than being baptised into Christ, there's a sense in which they were baptised into Moses. Uh, In a sense, as they walked through the Red Sea, they committed themselves to the path of following Moses. As they turned their back on Egypt and turned their face towards God's promised land, they they were making a fresh start, they were making a faith commitment The old was gone, the new was here. They went down into the sea as slaves. They came up the other side as free people. God had done it all. 
It's a lot like what happens with baptism. Now Paul's not trying to make a big theological point about baptism and how it should happen. He just wants to draw the parallel between Christians and Israel. Israel had received this privilege from God. But going on, not just baptism. Uh, What about the food and drink God provided for them in the desert, the manna and the water that came from the rock when Moses hid it? Both of them are spiritual or supernatural food and drink. They're provided by God. Uh, Something like the spiritual food and drink we receive at the Lord's Supper. They're actual physical things but they've got a a spiritual origin. God's given them to us and they actually serve a spiritual purpose. Uh, That's a privilege that we receive from God as well. Uh, And even when it comes to how that privilege is received. Uh, Verse 4, Paul talks about how Israel received their blessings through Christ even though he hadn't been born. They drank the blessings that Christ would later provide. God's grace to Israel comes because of Jesus, even though he hadn't yet been born. God counts Christ's death as acceptable punishment for all sin across all time, ours, Israel's and people into the future. So what's Paul's point in drawing all of these parallels between the Corinthians and Israel? Well, it's if you think you're privileged, if you think you're protected because of baptism and the Lord's Supper and so you can do whatever you like, think again. Israel had just those same sorts of privileges and look at what happened to them. See there in verse 5? Nevertheless... So despite having all of these privileges, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. They all received the privileges, but most of them died. Verse 6, learn the lesson from history. Uh, These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as as some of them were. And notice how he zooms in, idolatry. Uh, When you substitute God for some other thing to worship. And that seems like it's the key sin. Uh, From verse 8 he goes on to give a gruesome description of Israel's other failures. All the things that flow from idolatry, from replacing God with something else. Because once you remove God from the throne well then anything goes. You can be on the throne and you can do whatever you like. And so verse 8, Paul describes sexual immorality. Don't commit that like Israel did. Or verse 9, don't test the Lord. Don't try his patience or his justice. And verse 10, don't grumble like Israel did. Don't think you know better. It's not pretty reading as Paul describes it, but it's actually really hideous if you go back and read the Old Testament accounts in Numbers or in Exodus. God had done so much but none of it was good enough for Israel and so they replaced him as king. They put an idol, they made an idol and worshipped that instead and then anarchy reigns. Idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling, testing God. And when you put God to the test, what's the result? What's his solution? Well, there's punishment. Uh, see how we, we see God punishing Israel. Verse 5, 
bodies scattered over the desert. Verse 8, 23,000 dead from plague. Verse 9, killed by snakes. Verse 10, killed by a destroying angel. So that's the history lesson. Now Paul wants them to learn the lesson from history. He wants them to learn the peril of presuming that privilege precludes punishment. Uh, History, verse 11, gives us an example and a warning. And so what should we do, verse 12? So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And here in verse 12, Paul actually zooms in from the group, from the plural, into the individual, to you, singular. You, individual Christian. They're all, they're warnings for us, plural, so that the single person, the individual, who thinks he's standing firm, needs to be careful. And so you, individual Christian out there, you can't hide behind the rest of the group. You can't sneak through simply because you're sitting here in church with the rest or you look like everybody else. You can't trust the privileges that God has given us as a people, as a church. You need to be careful lest you fall. Israel enjoyed, all of Israel enjoyed the privileges. They all received the same good things but in the end they didn't make it. Most of them didn't make it. Uh, Individuals sinned and individuals were punished. And so Paul's word here uh, in verse 11 goes to individuals, to Peter, to Malcolm, to David, uh, to whoever it might be, to Joel. If you think you're standing firm, if you think you've got a particular sin beat, if you finally think you've got rid of jealousy or impatience or lust or anger, then be careful. Be careful you don't fall. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in your Bible knowledge. Don't trust in your theological pedigree or your possessions or your denomination. Don't take what you have. Don't take who you are for granted. Don't presume. That's the history lesson. In the negative... And so what's the positive? Well, Paul turns to the positive in verse 13. Look instead, don't look to yourself. Verse 13, look to God. He's the key. The key to standing firm. Throw yourself on him. You may be faithless, but he's faithful. And so verse 13, temptations to sin are going to come. Trials and hard times will knock you off your feet. But when they do, don't give up. Because what's happening to you is nothing new. You're not the first, you won't be the last. Everyone has gone through something similar, but God is faithful. Look at verse 13. He's reliable and consistent and trustworthy. He doesn't change. Whatever happens, it won't be more than you can bear. There will always be a way out. There's a promise to cling to. There'll be a way to resist temptation. There'll be an escape hatch. Verse 13, look at it. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's like those action movies. When the hero's trapped or just about to be squashed or shot or knifed or poisoned, we don't really worry too much. We're not really sitting on the end of our seat because, well, we know the way the plot works out, don't we? He's the hero. 
He's, he's going to find a way out. Of course he'll survive. We know that's the way it works in movies. And we've got this promise here for, uh, for Christians that it will work that way as well. And yet, uh, when we're in the midst of our temptations, we don't believe it. We don't struggle. We don't search for the way out. We don't look for the escape hatch. Too often we just give in to the temptation and we sin. Uh, we weakly, meekly give in like a wimp again and again and again. Because in, the, in that moment, in the moment of the temptation, we actually love our sin more than we love God. We're actually giving in to idolatry at that point when t- temptation comes and we don't look around for the way out. We don't love God enough in that moment to fight, to search, to struggle against temptation. We love sin's deceitful promises more than we trust God's reliability. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can stand. Remember it. And so Paul's first warning here is sort of a general one. Uh, It's not very specific. Don't presume that you're going to be able to remain because temptations will come. Be careful you don't fall. Have faith in God who's faithful. Uh, But then he zooms in and he gets more specific and it sort of zooms in on this situation in Corinth that we've seen for a couple of weeks, verses 14 to 22, uh, to do with idolatry. And in that sense, the Corinthians are pretty similar to Israel. Uh, They were being tempted in a similar way. The pagan temple was this big part of life in Corinth and actually participating in the religious services, in the sacrifices, well, it was practically expected. But Paul warns the Christians against doing it. Any way you look at it, if you're participating in the temple sacrifices... It's idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Uh, That's the same message that he gave in the first part of the chapter. Then he goes on to prove why it's idolatry. And it's an argument about what happens at the Lord's Supper. Uh, Verse 16, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Uh, And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So Paul's making a couple of points. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we're participating in the body and blood of Jesus. At a physical, sort of superficial level, we're actually eating bread and wine, we're participating, our bodies are participating with those things physically. But that physical thing symbolises our relationship with Jesus. And as we actually eat them and as we trust Jesus, uh, Jesus joins himself to us spiritually. Uh, He says that he lives in us and that we live in him. Uh, And as we eat, we're reminded of that and that reality, that spiritual uh, indwelling becomes more real for us as we eat and drink. Uh, When he defeats sin and death by his... uh, death and resurrection, we participate in that because we're joined to him uh, by faith. We're participating in his body and blood. But we don't just participate with Jesus, we actually participate or 
fellowship with each other. Uh, We're all joined to Jesus and therefore we're all joined to each other. Like spokes of a wheel are all connected to each other because each of them individually is connected to the hub of the wheel. That word for participate, it's where we get our word for communion from. Communion's just an old way of saying participation. It's the word, same word that we sometimes translate as fellowship. And so Paul's point is when when you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, you're not just doing something physical. It's not just about filling your stomach. Something spiritual is happening. You're, You're connecting yourself spiritually. The Old Testament sacrifices, verse 18, for Israel were the same. They were engaging in a spiritual act. And so he turns his attention finally, verse 19, to the pagan sacrifices. Uh, The Corinthians who participated in them were actually worshipping. And so it was idolatry. Verse 19, sure, it's true there's only one God but it's actually demons who are behind those idols. The idols are lumps of wood, but there are demons behind them, he says. Uh, And so when you eat in a temple, you're doing something spiritual. And he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Don't fellowship with demons. It's the same word. Uh, don't, Don't commune with demons. When you eat the Lord's Supper, you participate with Christ and when you eat at the table of idols, you're participating, communing with demons. So don't do it. Paul says you can't do both. You can't be joined to God's people and joined to demons. It's just not possible. You're either on God's side or you're worshipping with pagans and you're actually worshipping demons. You can't be both. Uh, If you do, if you think you can do that, then you're actually presuming, verse 22, that you're stronger than God and God won't stand for it because he's a jealous God. So that's what's going on with the Corinthians and Paul's instruction to them, steer clear of the temples, Uh, steer clear of participating in the temple rituals. But what about us in Australia? Does it affect us? Well, in some ways it doesn't. Idols are not a big part of our life. But imagine you were a Christian in Africa or New Guinea or parts of the Pacific Islands or Asia, an Aboriginal Christian perhaps. Uh, All of those cultures, idols and local religion and ancestor worship are a a big part of the, the total lifestyle. And the feasts that happen in the culture line up with religion. A friend of mine was telling me about an Aboriginal studies tour she went on. Uh, They were asked to to go to a sacred site and touch a special sacred rock and to feel the power that was there. Uh, Many of the other people in the group felt different emotions. Some felt warm, some described a sort of power and my friend said she felt sick and revolted by it. Um, Ask Leela sometime about some of the stories she's got about witch doctors in Vanuatu. I would say ni Vanuatu Christians have no problem believing in demonic power and steering clear of participating with those sorts of things. Paul's message is steer clear of it. It's not freedom, it's actually idolatry. 
Well, what about in our culture? What are some things that are spiritual we might need to steer clear of? Well, there's astrology. We might throw in crystals or spirit guides or astral travel. Some of it could be rubbish and people are just sort of jumping on a bandwagon, but it seems like in lots of those cases there's a real power behind it. Uh, Just the sort of thing that demons would love to use to turn people away from the true God. So I guess one lesson for us is to not minimise the demonic that we might see around us. Don't assume that everything is harmless. Don't jump on the politically correct anthropological bandwagon that whitewashes other spiritualities as neutral whether that's Aboriginal or Pacific Islander or Asian. Don't deny the spiritual side of life, of cultures, of other cultures. I think a lot of Western Christians make that mistake. We can minimise or uh, under-recognise the the spiritual side of life. We see so little of of miracles. Uh, We almost assume the world isn't spiritual. Or at least if it is, it's only God's spirit who's at work and everything else is just superstition. That's a mistake we can make. But flip it around, I think we can also make the mistake of focusing too much on evil spirits. Some Christians seem more uh, preoccupied with hunting out evil spirits uh, in people than they are with proclaiming the good news about God's spirit. They're scared that the battle is finely balanced, we need to remember that we're not battling real gods. We're battling against a defeated enemy. Christ has defeated Satan already on the cross. Colossians 2.15 says God has disarmed the powers and authorities. So that means all spiritual forces we come up against in whatever culture, God has made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So we shouldn't overemphasise them, we shouldn't ignore them, we shouldn't presume that we're safe and we're free to do whatever we like. And that's really the, the, the specific application of Paul's point. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. We need to learn the lesson from history. Or to put it positively, a few verses further down in verse 31, Paul sums up the whole way of living the Christian life. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do more broadly, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, Do it so that he might be praised, that he might be followed and obeyed and uh, he might be made God in any situation. Do everything with the goal of pleasing and honouring him. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, some, some of these verses are difficult and they seem like a long way away from where we're at. Uh, We pray that you'd be at work in us, that we might recognise your spirit, that you'd protect us. We think especially of temptations that we face. Uh, As we uh, look at them, help us to to love you and to hate the things that are being offered to us. Uh, Please show us a way out. Uh, Please give us the courage and the faith to keep looking, uh, to be patient, to be strong rather than to give in. And might we do it all for your honour and glory. Amen.